Welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the skin and soft tissue module from the general surgical curriculum, and the operation or topics we'll be covering today is an introduction to the skin. So in terms of background, the skin is the largest organ in the body, and it has a number of roles, including protecting us from pathogens, UV light and physical injuries, controlling our temperature, making vitamin D, storing water and fat, it secretes and sweats, it's a sensory organ and also has some immune function. In terms of the layers of the skin, this is relevant when talking about skin cancer. So I just wanted to start by going through this anatomy. Essentially, the skin most superficially has a layer called the epidermis. Underneath this is the dermis. Then the subcutis or hypodermis as it's called in the USA. The epidermis is the most superficial layer And this protects the underlying dermis and prevents water loss and entry of pathogens. And this is also where vitamin D is synthesized. It also has sensory receptors for touch, pressure, pain, and temperature. There are a number of layers of the epidermis. And the mnemonic that I use to remember these is come, let's get sunburnt. So C is for stratum corneum. Let's, so L is for stratum lucidum. Get, so G is for stratum granulosum. Sun, so stratum spinosum. And burnt is the basale or the basal layer. The stratum spinosum, so the second lowest layer, is about eight to ten cells thick. And this provides the structure for the epidermis. And these cells have desmosomes or bridges between the cells. And it can also make keratin, which is basically what waterproofs us. These two features, so these desmosomes or bridges and keratin, are features that are only seen in keratinocytes. And so this is important because if you want to diagnose an SCC under the microscope, you'd be looking for these sorts of features to indicate that it came from a keratinocyte as the primary cell. The basal layer or the stratum basale is a layer made out of a single cell layer of keratinocytes, which are cuboidal cells. And these cells undergo mitoses and then basically push above the basal layer to make all of those other layers above. This basale layer also has melanocytes, which are neural crest derived cells that make melanin, which is a pigment that helps protect us from UV radiation and also has Merkel cells, which are neuroendocrine cells involved in sensation. So these cells live in the basale layer of the epidermis. So the dermis is the layer underneath the epidermis, and this is the core zone of the skin that has blood vessels, nerves, lymphatics, hair follicles, and sweat glands. The dermis is made up of two layers, the papillary layer below, and then the reticular layer, which is above. 
The purpose of the papillary layer is to nourish and support the epidermis. And the reticular layer is the one that has sensory receptors that detect touch, pain, pressure, vibration, and temperature, and also has blood vessels that assist in thermoregulation. The clinically important thing about the dermis that I think of is in relation to burns. So partial thickness burns involve the superficial layer of the dermis and deep partial thickness burns include most of the layer of the dermis and deep burns mean that the dermis has been completely destroyed. And that's why uh, superficial burns can regenerate because a lot of those underlying tissues are still um, intact and so you can grow further skin on top of a partially intact dermis. And then the layer underneath this is the subcutis or the hypodermis. And this is a loose areola connective tissue layer with fat. And also most of the major vascular and lymphatic plexuses of the skin run in this um, subcutis layer. So another random topic I wanted to talk about for our introduction to skin is the Fitzpatrick skin types. And I don't know why this comes up a lot, but I've seen it come up in a few different questions. So the Fitzpatrick skin type is basically a classification system for different types of skin uh, colors and characteristics. And patients who have very uh, low numbers on the Fitzpatrick scale are more likely or at risk of developing UV-related skin cancers. And patients with very high ratings have a less likelihood of this. So type 1 is essentially very pale skin, often with red or blonde hair. And patients with Fitzpatrick type 1 skin will burn very easily and never tan. Fitzpatrick type 2 are patients with light skin, with blonde, red, or light brown hair. They um, will often burn easily and rarely will tan. Type 3 are patients with Uh, darker skin color. So they might have white or light brown colored skin. They can have brown uh, or dark blonde hair and they'll sometimes burn, but they will gradually tan. Type four are patients with medium brown to dark brown skin with brown, medium brown or dark brown hair, and they'll hardly ever burn and tan very easily. Type 5 are people with dark brown skin, dark brown hair that rarely burn and tan easily and quickly. And type 6 is very dark brown or black skin, black hair, and these patients never burn and tan very easily to a dark colour. So next I just wanted to talk about general principles of history and examination for skin lesions. So for history, you want to talk about the history of presenting complaint. So how long has the lesion been there? Has it grown or changed? Is there any symptoms such as itching or bleeding or pain? Have they noticed any other lumps or lesions? And has there been any exposures to the area or trauma to the area? Then you want to take a history of sun exposure, which is the main risk factor in Australia. And specifically, you want to ask about episodes of intense sunburn with blistering and the pattern of sunburn or sun exposure, such as at a very early age or if it's in an occupation, for example, so they'd have consistent sun exposure. 
You then want to ask them about past medical history, so any previous lesions or cancers, any family history, especially for melanoma, whether they're immunosuppressed, which increases the risk of skin cancer significantly, whether they've previously had any radiotherapy, what medications they're on, and whether they're a smoker. On examination, you want to look at the location of the lesion and measure the size. You want to have a look for the A, B, C, D, E. So A is for asymmetry. If you draw a line through the center of the lesion, the two halves, do they match? B is for border. Is it a smooth, well-demarcated border or is there irregularity? C is for color variegation. So what's the color of the lesion and does it vary across the lesion? D is for diameter. We've already talked about measuring the lesion. And E is whether it's evolving. So as we've talked about asking the patient whether there's any change in size and also whether it's nodular or not. You want to have a look at the surface of the lesion. So again, is it nodular or is it flat? Is there any ulceration? Can you see any keratinization, so little flaky bits? And is there a visual capillary network? You want to feel the lesion and see whether there's any tethering or fixidity to the underlying structures. And if you know how to do dermoscopy, then you can have a look at that. And basically, dermoscopy is where you use an oil interface um, to look at the lesion and it magnifies the lesion and decreases the reflection of normal light from the skin to enable you to see deeper structures. You also want to examine the associated lymph node basins and do a full skin check of the rest of the patient. And that means getting them down to their underwear and being systematic, including examining the fingers and toes. Moving on now, I wanted to talk a little bit about different types of flaps and grafts that we can use for skin cancers. So in general, a skin graft is a segment of the epidermis and dermis that's separated from its blood supply and donor site and then transplanted to another recipient site on the body. It requires a well-vascularized wound bed to be put onto that's free of infection and debris. And the different ones that we use in clinical practice include a partial or a split thickness skin graft, and this is the epidermis and just a portion of the dermis. And then a full thickness is the epidermis and the entire dermis. And obviously a full thickness requires closure because it's not going to have any overlying skin. It'll just be the subcutis below it. But a split thickness skin graft will heal itself because it's almost like a partial, superficial partial thickness burn. So in terms of the advantages of a split thickness skin graft, this can be useful to cover large areas because you can mesh the skin graft. It's got a good healing rate and you can reuse a donor site. So if you have somebody with extensive burns, you can wait for it to regenerate and use it again. You can also tailor it to the needs of the defect. In terms of the disadvantages, it is quite fragile. So especially if you have uh, patients that are non-compliant, it can be difficult to encourage them to leave all the dressings on and get them to heal. 
The cosmetic outcome isn't as good because the scars will look different because of the meshing of the skin. And also if a full thickness defect has been taken at the recipient site, then there will be some tissue lost and a divot there because it's only a partial thickness graft. The donor site can be painful and sometimes the texture and color match cannot be very good. In addition, split thickness skin grafts do contract down, so you may need to be careful about those on a location such as a joint. In terms of a full thickness skin graft, the advantages are that you get good texture as it's obviously a thicker graft and the cosmesis is better. And you can choose a area of skin that has a good match to where you're going to be transplanting it to. So for example, on the face, you can use a graft from the upper inner arm or sort of on the neck, which may be a similar type of tissue. And these grafts don't contract. But the disadvantages are that obviously there's a donor site and you have to be able to actually close that. Um, You're unable to regenerate the donor site because you've had to primarily close it. And it can be difficult to get the graft to take um, and you may need to fenestrate it so that you don't get blood building up and um, impacting on the connection between the graft and the underlying vascular bed. The pathophysiology of how skin grafts actually take is quite interesting. So in the first 48 hours, there's a condition called plasmacytic circulation which is where the transudate or plasma exudate at the recipient site nourishes the graft. And then after 48 hours, there's revascularization or neo-revascularization. And this involves ingrowth of blood vessels into the graft. And within seven days, the full circulation is restored to the graft, which is pretty amazing. And there's formation of a fibrin layer at the graft bed interface by a week that's going to hold the graft in place. Over time, re-innovation occurs, and this begins at four to five weeks and is completed by 12 to four months. And pain returns first with light touch and temperature returning later. Some of the reasons that a graft might fail include a hematoma under the graft, shearing or mechanical movement of the graft when it's trying to take, infection or poor quality of the recipient bed, or sometimes the thickness of the graft is too thick for that um, absorption or nourishing fluid to actually be absorbed through, or the vascularity of the donor site may be poor. The other options we have for closing a defect after removal of a skin lesion is a skin flap. And these can either be rotational, transpositional or advancement flaps. And the basis of skin flaps is that you keep the blood supply of the tissue that you're moving. So you don't have to rely on the recipient bed to perfuse the donor tissue. Indications for a skin flap include if a primary repair isn't possible, if the defect is not well vascularized, or if you have to try to cover a large defect. Most of the skin flaps that we do as general surgeons would be based upon random pattern blood supplies where the blood supply comes from multiple little unnamed vessels. There are Flaps that can be done by plastic surgeons where there's a blood supply that comes from a recognized larger artery or group of arteries and plastic surgeons can also actually use tissue from a distant site, transfer it to a new location and do a 
little microvascular anastomosis to make it a pedicled flap. Um, but I think that's out of the realm of the sort of thing we'd be talking about in our exam. It's probably just good to know that they exist. So some of the common flaps that we would use would be a rotational flap, which is something that's commonly used on the scalp, um, the lateral face, cheek and chins. And usually this is based around a semicircle flap of skin and subcutaneous tissue that is pivoted around um, to fill a defect. It's worth looking up some pictures of these, especially on the scalp, but you do have to do quite a big incision and flap in order to take the tension away and to spread it out over a larger area. Transposition flaps are things like rhomboid flaps, bilobed flaps, which I've commonly seen used for the nose, or a nasolabial flap. And again, it's worth looking up some pictures of these. You can get really good cosmetic outcomes with these sorts of flaps. Um, and often in the country, this is the sort of thing that we do for lesions on the face. And then advancement flaps are things like a VY or a keystone flap, which is commonly used um, for a keystone flap on the limbs. And VY flaps I've seen used a lot on the digits. I bet you didn't think that there would be much to talk about for an introduction to skin cancer, but I'm going to move on to topical treatments for skin cancers because I got very confused about all these different treatment options. So the first one to talk about is fluorouracil cream or 5-FU, and this is also called or has the brand name Aldara Cream. And if you remember, 5-FU is a type of chemotherapy, but you can give it in a cream and it's basically a pyrimidine anti-metabolite that interferes with DNA and RNA synthesis. And so rapidly proliferating cells are most sensitive to this treatment and it needs to be used twice daily for at least four weeks. The next one is a Miquimod cream. And this is basically a type of sensitizing treatment. So it enhances the immune response to viral infections and to tumors by inducing the immune system cells as well as interferon and other cytokines to destroy the tumor. And so it basically is activating your own immune system to kill the skin cancer. And this needs to be used five days a week for six weeks. And Imiquimod is approved for superficial basal cell carcinoma and for solar keratoses. The other options include diclofenac gel, which is a COX inhibitor and lipooxygenase enzyme. And this reduces the products of metabolism. And metabolites have a role in epithelial tumor growth. So it inhibits apoptosis and inhibits cell proliferation. And this needs to be used twice a day. Interferon is another topical treatment. And it's an inflammatory protein that is created in response to microbes, tumors, and antigens. And so by giving it on the skin, it has direct anti-tumor effects, such as um, stopping proliferation. It has direct cytotoxic effects and also has a partially um, indirect effect through activation of the immune system um, because it causes inflammation in the tumor and makes it a target for the immune system. And this is used in Carposi's sarcoma, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, viral papillomas, um, as well as in malignant melanoma, and it can be injected into the tumor if you have intransit metastases in malignant melanoma. 
And the advantages of using creams is that it treats a field change. So especially for superficial lesions like superficial BCC, you can treat a large area. But it does have recurrence rates that aren't insignificant. It obviously requires a lengthy treatment period. And because a lot of these are causing direct cell damage or activating the immune system, they cause quite a lot of inflammation and redness and pain. And so patient compliance can be an issue. The other treatment option locally that I've come across that I didn't know a lot about before I was studying skin cancer is Mohs surgery, which is micrographic surgery. And this can be done as fast Mohs, which is typically done by dermatologists, where they basically shave the lesion and then look at it under the microscope at the time to identify which parts of the lesion have a positive deep margin. And then they shave just that part of the lesion and then they send that to be looked at and keep going until they get a clear margin. The benefits of Mohs surgery is that they take less tissue overall, so there's a better cosmetic outcome, and there may be higher cure rates because you're confirming that you have a clear margin uh, before you obviously close them up or uh, finish the procedure. There's also a concept of slow Mohs, which is where if you're worried about the deep margin, you could excise the lesion and then leave it open and send the histopath to the lab and then bring them back a few days later and take more if you need to. Um, But I wouldn't say that would be routine for the sorts of skin cancers that general surgeons would be dealing with. And other non-surgical options include cryotherapy, so using liquid nitrogen to destroy cell membranes photodynamic therapy, which is using a photosensitizing agent and then light therapy, or using electrodesiccation and curatage, where you curate the lesion to the dermis and then use diathermy to the site. But the obvious issues with those approaches is that you're not getting histopathology, so you don't confirm what the lesion actually is, and you may not know whether or not you have clear margins or not. The last thing I wanted to mention is the increased risk of non-melanomatous skin cancers in patients who've had organ transplants or are immunosuppressed for other reasons. And especially squamous cell carcinoma is a common issue with organ transplants. So patients who've had a organ transplant have a 65 times more likely rate of getting a squamous cell carcinoma. And 40% of patients will have an SCC at 10 years. BCCs are 10 times more likely in a patient who's had a transplant than those who haven't. Patients who have CLL, HIV and rheumatoid arthritis are also at increased risk. And specifically, management for these patients involves obviously treating the primary, but also considering other options. So patients who can have their immunosuppression reduced if they're getting numerous skin cancers or life-threatening skin cancers should have it reduced. The use of sirolimus can have lower cutaneous malignancy rates. So sometimes patients will be transferred to sirolimus if that's happening for them. Patients can use oral retinoids like vitamin A derivatives that can reduce the incidence of non-melanomatous skin cancers in organ transplant recipients. Patients need intensive follow-up and surveillance once they've had their transplant to monitor for non-melanomatous skin cancers. 
And patients who have extensively sun-damaged skin can also use topical fluorouracil or Aldara cream, um, which can be used one to two times a day for three weeks and repeated every six months to reduce the risk of them developing skin cancers. So that completes this episode on an introduction to skin and skin cancers. I think you're really going to like the upcoming episodes that I have ready for you. And I hope that this introduction is going to be useful to understanding everything else that's needed to know about skin cancers. Once again, please remember to rate, review and subscribe so that other people can find the podcast. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! <laughs>